0: Well, good morning. It's great to get to be with you at Renaissance. I've been looking forward um, to being here this weekend. And um, I've actually known Michael Murphy, my hair twin, for a number of years. And has become a dear friend of mine. And it's been so fun to get to know Chris and the rest of the team. And I get a chance to work with a lot of different churches and pastors around the country. And I just want to say to you as a congregation that uh, you're blessed... Uh, Blessed to have a pastor and team who love you, who love the Lord, who work hard, who want to serve you. And I can tell you that being a pastor in our generation is not easy. About 1,500 pastors every month walk away from the ministry. And so to lead biblically, to love and lead your congregation... To be relevant and impact your community is no small thing. So my challenge to you is, as you think about your church and as you walk through your week, um, pray for your pastor. Pray for the staff who lead you here. And as you think about it, encourage them. Because what they have been called to do is no easy thing. Well, as Chris mentioned, we are in week two of this series called Empty. And... Um, All of us know what that's like to get in our car and see the needle on E and to have that kind of stressful, frustrated feeling of, um, you know, I got to go take care of the problem because if I don't, I'm going to be out of gas and that's going to cause more problems. In fact, in our car, when uh, you get down to about 50 miles, not only does the needle hit E, but a light comes on and a little message that says low fuel. And I was thinking about that this week and thinking, wouldn't it be great if when you and I emotionally or at the soul level began to get out of gas and run on fumes, that there was some kind of message that popped up in our life or a needle that said, hey, you're in the danger zone, you're about to run out of gas. And I thought even better than that would be if somehow... My wife got a text message every time I was running out of steam, every time I was beginning to feel empty. Sort of a message that said, hey, Connie, warning, Lance is running out of gas, stay away. You know, Because the truth is, none of us are at our best when we're running on empty. And so I want to talk to you about a core belief, a concept of the Christian life, that if you get this, if you grab a hold of it, if you let it really sink down deep in your soul, it's like pulling up to the gas tank and putting the nozzle in your soul and filling you up. You know, this is a pretty special year for my, well, my wife and I, Connie, because um, we've been married for 35 years this year. And um, I, even though it's been more than 36 years now since I first met her, I could take you back to the exact spot where I met her. Uh, We were both at the university and we were um, in Dallas at a leadership training conference and one night afterwards our schools were sort of mingling out in the parking lot and I saw her. In fact, today I often tell people that she was working the parking lot at a hotel when I met her, but it's not as bad as it sounds. And um, I saw her and went up, introduced myself, got to know her a little bit and I knew immediately that this was a lady that I wanted to get to know, that I wanted to be in relationship with. But there was one big problem. Now, again, remember, this is a long time ago. There were no cell phones, no unlimited minutes, no texting, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, no email. So we had an arrangement being poor students. Our arrangement was we would call each other once a week, and then every single day... I sat down and wrote her a letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and mailed it to her so that every day for about a year, she got a personal letter for me. And I'll tell you why. Because I was in love. And about a year later, I asked her to marry me. And in a moment of poor judgment, she said yes. And we've spent the last three and a half decades trying to figure out how to do this dance called marriage and relationship and romance. And it's not easy, is it? I'm sure you will not be surprised to discover that our 35 years have not all been filled with bliss and wild romance and warm fuzzies. It's been hard. And there's been a lot of conflict and some pain along the way because the truth is that every single relationship is complicated and messy. I kind of chuckled not long ago reading a little survey that they did of 10-year-olds about their perspective of love and romance. So they asked a series of questions like they asked the question, how do you decide who you're going to marry? So Alan, his response is, well, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff as you. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) Now, Alan is in for a very rude awakening (laughs) as he goes down the road of romance. Kristen, in answering the same question, said, no person really decides beforehand who who they're going to marry. God decides it beforehand, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. And then my personal favorite, Ricky, who I think is very intelligent for 10 years old, when asked the question, how would you make a marriage work, his answer was this. You tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. Now, (laughs) that's a kid who is going to go places. But from their naive and inexperienced 10-year-old mind, they have a skewed perspective. You you know, you and I look at it as people who now have been in love, been smitten in a a romantic relationship. But when you're 10, you don't get it because you're sort of an outsider looking in. And in some ways, I think that's true for a lot of people that I know spiritually. Um, They have a view of God that isn't really about a love relationship. It's a, it's a view of God that's sort of harsh and mean-spirited and that God is all about rules and regulations. And one of the things that I want you to understand as we talk this morning is that at the very core of Christianity, it's a love story. It's a it's an unfolding drama. It's a journey that you and I get to be a part of. It's not a set of rules or or a bunch of ethics that God has given us to live by, or principles to guide our life. He, he, he didn't just hand down this book so that you and I would um, have a bunch of rules to guide our lives by. It's way, way more than that. And I hope today that if you get a hold of this story, that it'll take your breath away, that it'll stop you dead in your tracks, because if you really get it, it will forever change you. So here's how I want to approach the message this morning. It's really a love story. And like every love story, it begins with a tragedy. And so I want to take you to this obscure character in the Old Testament and this obscure story to give you a picture of this thing called scandalous grace. And I've broken down the story into four acts. And the first act is called run for your life. So let me set up the context for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul is the king of Israel now. They are at battle with their arch enemy, the Philistines, and Saul was leading his troops in battle. He was not back home commanding from the palace. He was in battle as well as his sons. Well, as the Philistines draw close to the front lines of the Israelite armies, one of the archers pulls back his bow, lets his arrow go. And one of the arrows finds its way into the flesh of Saul, and he is fatally wounded So much so that Saul knows he's going to die, doesn't want somebody else to come and kill him. And so the Bible says that Saul falls on his sword. Well, the king is dead. Well, that day in battle is is also his son, who's next in line to be king. His name is Jonathan. But there's a subplot you need to know about. And the subplot is that Jonathan has a good friend by the name of David. Now, David grew up on the farm. He was a shepherd. He took care of sheep. Um, He grew up poor. But Jonathan grew up on the other side of the tracks. He was the king's son. He lived in the palace. And these guys struck up a very close friendship. And God just knit their hearts together. They were good friends. But Jonathan is now in battle. Well, the Bible says not only is Saul killed, but Jonathan is killed as well as his two brothers. So the entire royal family is decimated. Well, when word travels back home to Jerusalem, to the palace, the Bible says that pandemonium breaks out in the palace because in those days, when the king was killed and a new king was going to begin to rule in the land, they quickly executed the royal family because they didn't want any chance of an uprising. And so that's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Let me read to you what happens. It says, Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when Saul and Jonathan were killed at the Battle of Jezreel. And when the news of the battle reached the capital, listen what happened. The child's nurse grabbed him, and she fled, but she fell. And when she fell, she dropped him as she was running, and he became crippled as a result. So Jonathan has a five-year-old son back at the palace. His name is Mephibosheth. And by the way, so I don't have to say that name 25 times. We're going to nickname him Seth, all right? So Seth is five years old. Now, imagine this. He's like any other five-year-old. He's carefree. He's running around the palace. Every need that he has is completely met. He's actually in line to someday take over the kingdom. And on this tragic day, as destiny would have it, his entire future has changed. He now is going to be a fugitive. He's going to live in isolation and pain. And on top of all of that, add insult to injury, the nurse drops him and he's going to be disabled for the rest of his life. This five-year-old kid is now forever changed. And here's the lesson. I'm going to, as we walk through this story, I want to draw some lessons that apply to you and I. So here's the first one. You and I are more broke than we think. Just like Seth we're broke. It may not be that you have a, a broken body, but the Bible says that you have a broken soul. The Bible would say that inside every one of us there is something broken and it's called a sin nature. Now, you walk in here today and you look around at everybody in this room and everybody seems to be pretty together. They're dressed nicely, they're articulate, educated, they're friendly, they shake your hand. But the truth is, inside of us, there is something desperately wrong. We're broken. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says it like this. As for you, it says you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. Not, not like disadvantaged, but dead. And then in Romans 5, he says, when you and I were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. So that's our condition. Dead in our sins, Utterly helpless. So whether I acknowledge it or not, whether I admit it or not, whether I'm educated or not, whether I grew up going to church or not, the truth is inside every single one of us, there is a brokenness. And here's the rest of the bad news. You can't do anything to fix it. You can't remedy the condition of the brokenness of your soul just by doing what you think you need to do. Sometimes we think, well, if I can just clean up my act, if I can just get better, It's like having this death-killing tumor inside of me, and then I decide to stop smoking. I'm going to clean up my act. Well, the truth is, you've already got the tumor. You're you're already dead anyway. Giving up smoking isn't going to help much at this point. And the Bible says that we have this tumor called a sin nature inside of us, and every single one of us are broken. But thank goodness that's not the end of the story. In fact, let's follow on to Act 2, which is you, you can run, but you can't hide. So let me explain what that means. If you were to fast forward over to 2 Samuel chapter 9, by this time, it's been 20 years. We haven't heard anything from Seth. He's lived in isolation and pain in this remote place. But David has now, his, old, you know, his dad's old friend David has become king over Israel. And his physical kingdom has grown from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. The economy is thriving. There's peace. They're not at battle. Um, David is living the dream and enjoying the good life. And then I imagine that there comes this morning when David gets up early. Now, again, I'm sort of um, exaggerating a bit in this. I kind of like to think of David grabbing his cup of coffee, even though I don't know that they had that then. And it's early in the morning, and David picks up his coffee and he goes outside on the back patio. And on this particular morning, none of his meetings have started. Running the the kingdom hasn't really invaded his mind. On this particular morning, as David just drinks his coffee in the cool morning, he begins to just kind of reflect on his life, and he's just so grateful. I mean, when he thinks about where he started as a little shepherd boy, and now he's king of the land, and what God's done, and how his, the economy is thriving, and how blessed he is, I mean, his, his heart's just full of gratitude. And then he remembers this conversation. A conversation he'd had with his friend Jonathan more than 20 years ago, and the conversation was that they had committed in friendship to one another, and that no matter where life led them, that they would, would be committed to one another and... To each other's families and so a question comes to david's mind and he calls in one of his servants and the servant's name is ziba and he says to ziba hey is there anybody left from saul's household now i love the fact that he doesn't ask is there anybody who could serve on my cabinet is there anybody who could lead the troops into battle is there anybody who could be my economic advisor no it's just is, is there anybody and Zeba has a very interesting response. Zeba's response goes something like this. Well, yeah, David, there is. There's this one guy that I know of. His name is Seth. But I'm not really sure he's royal material. I'm not sure he really, you want him around the palace. He, um, he's a fugitive. He, he's disabled. I'm not sure that he really belongs here. And David says, well, where is he? And by the way, this, when David asked that question, where is Mephibosheth, it's the first time that Mephibosheth's name is mentioned without his handicap. And I've thought about that, and I wonder how many of us still live with kind of a stigma. There's something in our past that we still carry with us today. In fact, it's, it's what we're known for. And you've been in those conversations, you know, where somebody's name comes up, and you say, oh, you know, Susan, she's the one who left her husband. Or you remember Bill, he's the guy that in high school had the real drug problem. Or or you know Tom, his company went bankrupt. And so there are people around us, maybe even some in this room, that you you carry this stigma with you, sort of like Mephibosheth. There's something always attached to your name that isn't so pleasant. And we wonder, are we ever going to be set free from that? And David just says, go get him. And in that is... A great spiritual lesson for us. And here's the second lesson. That we are more pursued than we think. I mean, this is unbelievable. Here is the king going after a fugitive, going after someone disabled, going after someone who now was anonymous. And David goes after him. And there's a great spiritual lesson in that. And that is that the God of the universe pursues you. Even right now. You know, sometimes in pastor world, we talk about people who are seekers. And what we mean by that is people who are on this spiritual journey, their circumstances and situation in life has put them on this path and they're trying to discover and connect in a relationship with God and we call them seekers. And while there's certainly truth to that, what I want you to understand is that God is the original seeker. That more than I ever sought after God, he came after me. And when you really ponder that, it's unbelievable that the God of the universe would pursue a relationship with me. And he does that with you. In fact, that thread runs all the way through the Bible. You go back to the book of Genesis. Here, Adam and Eve sin in the garden and God comes finding them. In the cool of the evening, the Bible says. Or you go to the book of Exodus and Moses kills an Egyptian, spends 40 years on the backside of the desert, and God comes and meets him in a burning bush. Jonah, who runs from the call of God and ends up in the belly of a fish, the Bible says in chapter 2 of Jonah that God comes and meets with him. And my favorite one in the New Testament, here is Peter. And he denies Christ three times. And in one of the Gospels, it says that when Peter denied Christ the third time, his eyes meet the eyes of Jesus, and he is filled with shame and guilt, and he weeps bitterly, and he knows that he has blown it. And the Bible says that he goes back to his fishing career. And after his resurrection, Jesus comes up to the lake where Peter is fishing, and he meets him there and has breakfast with him on the shore. God has a long history of chasing after us. Ephesians 1, Paul says it like this. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. Then in verse 5, he says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. He came after us, just like David went after Mephibosheth. Well, Let's continue the story. Mephibosheth hoped he would never be found. Because for all he knew, he would be executed as part of the former royal family. But the chariot pulls up in front of his house one day. The king's guards come and tell him that the king has demanded an audience with him. And so they put him in the chariot. And I've often wondered what it would have been like to be Mephibosheth on that ride to Jerusalem to the palace. For all he knew, he was going to be condemned, judged, maybe even executed as part of the former royal family. And that introduces us to the third act, which I call a divine ambush. So Seth comes to the palace, the chariot pulls up. Seth hobbles in before the king, and the Bible says that he gets down on his knees. He gets down on his face and basically says to David, Hey, I, I I'm your servant. Like I'm begging for mercy, and I love David's response. You know what he says, Seth? Don't be afraid. Do you know that the most repeated words from the lips of Jesus are those three words, "Don't be afraid." David says to Seth in that moment, "I'm not going to judge you, not going to condemn you, certainly not going to execute you. Just it's okay." And to give you a little insight into where Seth is and what he thinks of himself, here's what he says to David. Who am I, a dead dog like me, that you should pay attention to me? I mean, I'm a nobody. I'm broken. I'm a fugitive. I mean, I'm, I'm part of the former royal family where I could probably be executed. And David says, no. And he gives him unexpected grace here's the lesson i want you to get bound up in the nature of god is the inclination to pour undeserving grace or pour uh, undeserving grace on undeserving people that god in his nature pours grace out on undeserving people that's his nature And it's the thread that runs all the way through the Bible. That's the part of the love story that a lot of people never really understand. But let's be honest, that's not how it works in our world. We want people to get what they deserve. We want justice. We want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We don't want people to get a free pass when they screw up. And I remember a few years ago, I got an invitation. Maybe you've gotten one of these invitations to join the government at the courthouse for jury duty. And I don't know about you, you're probably a more noble citizen than me, but I sometimes have thought, you know, like I'm not really that excited about spending my my day or possibly being selected for a jury. And so I sat there in the courtroom that day trying to think, what could I say to get out of jury duty? So like when the judge says, hey, can you, you know, look objectively at the facts? My response was going to be, well, I hope so, but he sure looks guilty. I was thinking that was a way for me to get out of jury duty. But I, I remember, in fact, I wrote him down the words that the judge said to us that day in the courtroom, and here's what he said. Discover the facts and apply them to the law, no more, no less. So what he was saying is, it's all about justice in here. It's not about mercy, not about grace. It's only about justice. And I get that. We need justice in our world. We need laws, and I understand that. But I'll tell you this. When it comes to my relationship with God, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want what Seth got from David. And so here's the point. You and I are more loved than we can imagine. Yes, I'm broken, but somehow God in his grace pursues me and he pursues me because he loves me. Look at it with me at Ephesians 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. And then listen to these words. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, And forgave us. You know, I don't know what kind of stigma you carry, what kind of baggage from your past, but I can tell you that God wants to pour His grace out on you. On December the 18th, 1865, once and for all, slavery was abolished in this country as the 13th Amendment was signed into law. But on that day, every slave in America was technically free, but many of them continued on in slavery, some of them for years for two reasons. Some never got the word that they'd been set free, and some got the word but just couldn't believe that it was because it was just seemed too good to be true. And I think there's spiritual truth in that. I think there may be people even in this room today who... The truth is, you've had this view of God that it's, you've got to be good enough and you've got to work hard and you've got to clean up your act. And for you, you've never gotten the word that it's not about rules, it's about a relationship and that there's this love story that God has invited you into. And for some of us, we hear that story and we go, man, that's just that is too good to be true. If you'd known what I've done, if you know what kind of thoughts I have, if you knew what I do behind closed doors, if you knew who I was and where I've been... There's no way that I could ever experience that kind of grace. But that's the good news is you can. And some of us have. So you've been set free and we have been given the privilege now of living this life of grace. And if the story ended there, it's a great story. But there's one more act you've got to see if you're really going to grab a hold of grace. And it's what I call a seat at the table. So go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and let's look at verse 7. David is talking to Seth, and here's what he says to him. Seth, I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you'll always eat at my table. So the very place where 20 years earlier... He had experienced tragedy. Now he's experiencing lavish grace. And then in verse 11, he says to him, Seth, you're going to eat at David's table like one of the king's sons. You're going to be part of the family. I love this passage because Seth is not only just going to get the land restored to him and Zeba's going to farm the land and make sure that his family's always provided for in the future, but he says, not only that, Seth, but Hey, I want you to be part of the family. I want you every, every night at the dinner table, Seth, there's going to be a seat set just for you. And then I love the way the chapter closes because four times, get this, four times in these short amount of verses, the Bible would say that Seth would eat at the king's table. And then it closes the chapter by saying, and oh by the way, he was crippled in both of his feet. It's almost like it's telling us you have been given this wonderful gift of living in God's grace and being blessed by him. But don't ever forget how broken you used to be. And I have this picture in my mind of the dinner bell ringing and of everybody in the king's family coming to the table. There's David sitting at the head of the table, servants putting the food on the table, the sons and daughters gathering around the table. And the the last one to get there is Seth because... It takes him longer, and he pulls himself into the seat, and he pulls his legs around underneath the table, and he covers his legs with the tablecloth of grace. I tell you, if there's anybody who understood grace and the grace in spite of brokenness, it's Seth. And you and I get to do that. You know what I love about a church like Renaissance? Renaissance is that this is a trophy case of God's grace. That no matter who you are, or where you've been, or what you've done, you're welcome here. Because you know what? All of us are broken people who have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. So we don't look judgmentally on anyone. We don't condemn anyone. We're not here to point the finger of blame at anyone we're here to say guess what no matter where you've been what you've done how broken you've been there is a seat at the table for you and you are welcome in this place now let me just give you this one last thought and that is that we are more privileged than we think you see it's not just grace that gets you into the christian life it's now how you live once you're in I don't have to get God to try to like me or to love me. He already does. He's given me a seat at the table. And the same grace He lavished on me so that I could be part of the family, now is the same grace I get to live in every single day. And so, yeah, life is hard. And yeah, there's problems. And yes, there's lots of stress. And sometimes I get empty. But when I get empty, if I can just remember this, I used to be broken. And now I am a recipient of his grace i have been a christian for more than 40 years and the longer i walk with jesus the more i am humbled by his grace and i'll tell you why because i know how broken i am and how unlovable i can be and what sometimes resides in me even after all these years of following christ and so when I get that and think that God loves me anyway and that he pursued me and offers me grace and gives me a seat at the table wow that is an unbelievable privilege but but I, there's one more assignment I want to give you because you have been called not just to receive it but now to be a carrier of it in fact look with me at acts 20 verse 24 this these are your marching orders. Acts 20, verse 24, he says, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful what? Grace of God. Paul said, you want to know what matters to me most? Is that I get to. Tell other people about this amazing grace. You see, you're not supposed to be just a reservoir or a container of God's grace. You're supposed to be a conduit. So when you go out from these walls and you interact with people in this community today and through the week and at your place of business, here's what I want you to remember, that when you shake somebody's hand or you look them in the eye, they are somebody created in the image of God. They matter to him. And you get to look them in the eye and say, listen, God loves you. And he wants to extend grace to you. And you and I get to be the carriers of that message. So let me ask you, as we wrap up, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had that encounter with God's grace where you've become part of the love story? If you're still thinking the Christian life is about obeying a bunch of rules, you don't get this story God's inviting you, and he's already done everything to pave the way. Jesus left heaven, lived on this earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and all that's left is for you to say, okay, Lord, I'm in. I, receive, I step over the line, and I accept the gift that you've given me, and you can even do that right where you sit today in your own words, in your own way, just to say, okay, I get it. I want to I receive this unbelievable gift of God's grace. I hope that some of you will do that. Let's pray together today. Lord, thank you for um, this amazing thing called grace. I hope we never get over what it means that you love us. That you pursue us. That in spite of how broken we are, you have lavished us with grace. It's in your nature to pour out grace on undeserving people. So, Father, would you help all of us to have that grace encounter and to walk this week in that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand because I want to read something over you as you leave today. So let me just leave you with this verse. It's a blessing. It says this. May the grace... Oh, did you get that? Push push, pause. Rewind. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So my prayer for you is that you would walk in the amazing grace of Jesus Christ this week. Have a great week. See you next time. God bless you.